Uh, you're beautiful. Good morning. My name's Cody. I'm the senior pastor. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. And it is time for Children's Church. And so if you're four years old through the fifth grade, go have a good time. And again, if this is your very first time with us and you have not yet registered your child uh, in our children's ministry, would you just exit with them real quickly? We just need a little bit of contact information so we have them tethered to you the whole time this morning. And then you can slip back up in here uh, for the remainder of our time in the Word. Uh, if you are... Uh, not a part of our church. You're visiting from out of town today. I'm so grateful that you're here, and I hope you go back home to your home church, and you tell your pastor and your friends that they have a faith family here in Hingham. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, maybe you come from a very different faith background, in fact, you are our honored guest today, and you have joined us on what is perhaps uh, the most important day on our worshiping calendar. And so I hope this morning is inspirational for you. I hope it is joyful for you. And if you'd like to know more about what we believe or how it is that Jesus Christ has transformed our lives, I'd love to have that conversation with you. Uh, I would welcome the opportunity to share a cup of coffee, to learn more about your spiritual journey, and to share with you uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to spend some time in the Word this morning. And so if you have your Bible with you, would you please open to Matthew chapter 28. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. It's the black one. And if you're new to the Bible, I'll give you a shortcut for finding the passage we're going to study. You'll find Matthew chapter 28 on page 885. And so I'd encourage you to open up a Bible to keep easy access to it because we're going to refer back to it several times uh, through the remainder of our time together this morning. Now we begin our service today with this call and response, the Lord is risen, He is risen indeed. And uh, we've say, said that a lot this morning, He is risen, He's risen indeed. I want you to think back over the past year, when else have you said that line? Have you said it at all outside of Easter Sunday? Have you ever said it to another person as a form of encouragement? Perhaps a friend came to you and said, hey, I don't know if Jesus loves me. Would you respond, well, he's risen? Or if a friend came and said, I'm really afraid, would you say he is risen? Or if they came to you and said, look, Jesus must be so ashamed of me, would you encourage them by saying he is risen? You probably wouldn't. But you should, because Christian people should know not only the fact of Christ's resurrection, but the meaning of His resurrection, the impact of it. What difference does it make to our lived experiences that Jesus died and rose again? What does His resurrection mean for people who are weak, people who are afraid, people who are ashamed? Well, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10, is Matthew's account of the resurrection. On resurrection morning, the lives of the first witnesses were transformed forever, so much so that the line, He is risen, was never cliche to them, but it was only rocket fuel for every challenge they would ever face. Matthew wants the same for us. Jesus wants the same for us. And this passage intends to teach us not only the fact of the resurrection, but the impact of it on our lives. 
And so my goal today is to deepen your understanding and your experience of Christ's resurrection. There are three scenes in our passage, and each one of these scenes teaches us a different meaning of the phrase, He is risen. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 28. Jesus has been dead for three days. It's Sunday morning, and that's where our passage picks up. Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. What do we mean when we say he is risen? Well, this story gives us three answers. And the first is this. He is risen means that we are objects of Jesus' powerful love. That simple line, he is risen, is packed with this eternal deep truth that you are an object of Jesus' powerful love. Our story opens with a time stamp. Matthew tells us that it is after the Sabbath as the first day of the week was dawning. So the Jewish Sabbath runs from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. The first day of the week is Sunday. So our scene opens at sunrise on Sunday after Jesus' execution on a Roman cross on Friday. And we're told that some of the women who were followers of Jesus are going to view the tomb. Now, they had work that they intended to do at the tomb. Mark's gospel tells us that they carried spices with them. And the reason they carried these spices was very practical. It, it was to cover the stench of the decay of death. But they're going to the tomb not just because they have work to do. This is not a work visit, but really this is an expression of their grief. And maybe you've had a similar experience as well. Have, have you ever visited the gravesite of someone you love and you find yourself beginning to pick weeds or to wipe off the headstone? This is an expression of our grief, and so it was for these women as well. Now, the details that follow come quickly from Matthew. He tells us there was an earthquake. The angel of the Lord descended and approached the tomb rolled back the stone, and then sat on it. Now, it's interesting to me, this is not the first earthquake in the story. The first earthquake took place on Friday at the moment of Jesus' death. And then here we have a second earthquake at the instance of his resurrection. 
One writer described it this way. He said, the earth trembled with sorrow at his death and leapt for joy at his resurrection. Matthew also describes for us the appearance of the angel. He says the angel uh, had an appearance like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. An appearance like lightning means the angel is powerful and his white clothing speaks of his purity. And why is it that the angel rolls the stone away? Have you ever thought about that? Why does the angel roll the stone away? If you were to answer quickly, you would say, well, so that Jesus can come out of the tomb. But none of the four gospel accounts of the resurrection describe Jesus walking out of the tomb. Do you realize that? We just have it as fact that he rose from the dead. And how powerful of a God would he be if he could conquer death, but he couldn't roll a measly stone out of the way? To get out of the place. So why does the angel roll away the stone? It's not to release Jesus, but to reveal that he was risen. Now there's one more important detail in the scene. It's in verse 4, and it involves the guards that were present. Matthew tells us the guards were so shaken by fear of the angel that they became like dead men. Now, who are these guards, and, and why are they there? These are Roman soldiers they're placed there with a mandate from religious leaders. Religious leaders went to the powers that be and said, hey, we've heard that some of his disciples might try to come steal his body, and then they're going to concoct some story like, he's risen from the dead. People don't rise from the dead. So just to make sure this doesn't happen, can we have some burly soldiers to put at the tomb to deter this? And Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, said, yep, go ahead. So here we have Roman soldiers who are there to deter anyone from stealing Jesus' body. Here's the detail that gets me, though. Matthew tells us that they were so shaken by fear of the angel that they became like dead men. Don't miss the irony here. The living men have become like dead men, and the dead man is alive again in this moment. And the soldiers are utterly powerless no one swings a sword. No one hurls a spear at the angel. There's no rally cry or battle charge by the soldiers that are there. The angel of the Lord appears, rolls away the stone, takes a seat, and the soldiers are done. Do you think maybe they needed more soldiers? Maybe that would have made a difference. If they had more soldiers there, they, they could have stood their ground or Maybe if they had modern weaponry, then they could have fought against the angel and they could have held on to their territory more. Hey, listen to me. There is no power on earth that rivals the omnipotence of God. Put every soldier and every weapon on this planet at that tomb and God's will is accomplished. Your salvation is done. No one keeps Jesus in that tomb. Now, if you and I just read this story quickly, our familiarity might blind us to the display of God's omnipotence in this story. It's an incredible display of power that we cannot miss. His infinite power over every army of the world is on display here. We see His power over death itself. His power over the earth and all creation, even His power over the curse of our sin that brought death into this world to begin with. And what does He do with that power? He saves you. He does the work 
that salvation requires, and he doesn't have to use his power in that way. He could use his power for our destruction, and that would be well-deserved sinners that we are against God. But instead, our God, who is all-powerful, is also all-loving, and he couples his power and his compassion together for your salvation. Humans don't do that. Those who have the most power on this planet are not motivated by love for others. Now, to be fair, I have not conducted a scientific poll of world powers. So here's my anecdotal evidence. Not once have I ever seen a presidential candidate who ran on a platform of love. And not once have I ever heard nor read of an American president telling his people I love you. I've never seen Elon Musk tweet that he loves his Twitter crowd or his employees, or Jeff Bezos say that he loves his Amazon employees, or Robert Kraft says that he loves his people. We don't even expect that of CEOs or people in power. If a CEO were to get up and talk about his or her love for their people, we would find that weird. We don't expect power and love to live side by side. And it doesn't as far as people are involved. The combination of power and love does not live in any seat of human power. They are God's possessions alone. And the Bible reminds us of this over and over again by showing us so many demonstrations of God's power and love. He was powerful enough to create the universe with his word and loving enough to create Adam and Eve with his hands and breath. He was powerful enough to send the flood, loving enough to rescue Noah and his family. He was powerful enough to part the Red Sea, loving enough to deliver the Israelites from certain doom. He was powerful enough to send his rebellious people into exile, but loving enough to rescue them and bring them back home. He was powerful enough to give his son to die for our sins and loving enough to rescue and save everyone who comes to him through faith. Once upon a time, Jesus' disciples asked him, hey, teach us how to pray. And Jesus taught them to pray with the opening words being a demonstration of God's love and his power. Our Father, that is his love, who art in heaven, that is his power. Every time we pray, every time we read the Bible, we see this combination of God's power and his love for our sake. So how do you come in here today? What is the condition of your soul? You might be like the women in this story who were living under the crushing weight of death. But at the empty tomb, they saw that Jesus is all-powerful over death and sin and loving enough to rescue them from it. And that's what we mean when we say He is risen. We mean He is mighty and He loves you. So when we say he is risen, we mean that we are objects of Jesus' powerful love. But the second thing that line means, he is risen, means Jesus has destroyed our fear. The word fear shows up in this story four different times. First time is in verse 4, the guards are afraid. The second time is when the angel tells the women in verse 5, do not be afraid. Then in verse 8, We're told they're still afraid, but now they've got joy also. And then in verse 10, 
Jesus finds them and he also tells them to not be afraid. It's noteworthy that the angel told the women not to be afraid. He didn't tell the soldiers not to be afraid. Quite frankly, they needed to lay in the dirt and tremble for a little while. But he spoke comfort to these women who are the recipients of God's grace. Now the words, don't be afraid, are a familiar refrain any place in the Bible where there is a heavenly visitation. It's one of the most recognizable lines in the Bible, and one of its most recognizable uses was also by an angel of the Lord on the night that Jesus was born. Do you remember how that story goes in Luke chapter 2? What did the angel of the Lord say to the shepherds in that field? He said, don't be afraid, for look, I give you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I wonder if the angel that said, don't be afraid to the shepherds is the same angel that said, don't be afraid to the Marys. Maybe. We'll find out one day. But why did the angel tell the women not to be afraid? Well, there's a practical reason here for sure. If you witnessed the angel of the Lord who looked like lightning and pure white snow, you would be undone. You would need reassurance. You're not going to pound your chest and be like, ha-ha, there you are, I knew it. You would melt. You would expect the glory of God to French fry you totally. You would expect judgment to come in the face of this blazing glory of God. So it's practical. Don't be afraid. I'm not here for your harm. I'm, I'm here for your good. But I think the angel's instructions to not be afraid are more than just practical I take them to be diagnostic. Fear is not just the emotion of the moment. It's the very essence of our existence in a sin-marked world. These women lived in fear of more than just the heavenly visitor. They were afraid of Roman spears. They were afraid of religious authorities. They were afraid of death. They were afraid of the future. They were full of fear, and so are we. Now, where does fear come from? What is its origin? God didn't create this world with fear. The Garden of Eden was a fearless place. There, there was no fear of death, no fear of sickness, no fear of starvation, no fear of shame. There was no fear of God. But that fearless existence changed when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. We're told in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, that after they ate from the forbidden tree, they hid from God because they were afraid. And their fear is still with us to this day. Fear is not natural to God's creation. Fear is the fruit of sinful rebellion. We don't recognize how unnatural our fear is because we've always lived with it. But fear is like an invasive species that's unnatural to our creation and has come to define our very existence. Now, how do we fix it? How do we eradicate fear? Would more money do it? Would better medicine get rid of our fear? Healthier relationships? An extended life? Well, the answer to all of these is no. None of those things get rid of our fear. There's no solution to be found from within our fearful existence. 
And the fact that there's no solution for our fear from within our experience of fear should probably lead to more fear. But I want you to see how the angel comforts these women in this moment. He points them over and over again to Jesus. So he tells them, don't be afraid. Why? He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. So first he reassures them with Jesus' own words. What's happening is exactly what Jesus told you would happen. You don't have to be afraid because the words of Jesus are true. And then the angel comforts them with evidence, inviting them to look in the empty tomb for themselves. Come and see the place where he lay. You know, you can go to that same place today and find the same thing they found, which is nothing because he's not there. You don't have to be afraid because he conquered death and he's alive. Now, if they had looked in that tomb and seen the body of Jesus still laying there, decaying, that's when real fear should have set in. It would have meant that all of his promises were in fact lies and that death was indeed king. But the empty tomb means that every scary thing is defeated. Jesus is alive Fear is dead. And so the angel reminds the women of Jesus' words, confirms those words with the empty tomb, and then sends them to tell the good news about Jesus to the disciples. So Jesus' resurrection means that they have nothing to fear. And so it is for us. The solution to our fear comes from our risen Savior. He will not leave us in the fear that we brought into this world. He will rescue us from it. One of the eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ was one of his disciples named John. And I want you to listen to John's words in a letter he wrote to a fearful church. It's found in the Bible in the book we call 1 John. And there he wrote, God is love. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear. Our powerful, loving Savior eradicates fear once and for all. Doesn't just hold that fear off for some distant future, but in the here and now, the followers of Jesus can say, He is risen, and know what that means as it pertains to our fear. Without Christ, life is terrifying. But with Christ, our eternity is fearless. And that's what we mean when we say, He is risen. We have nothing to fear. So he has risen means that we are objects of Jesus' mighty love. It means that he has destroyed our fear. And finally, he has risen means Jesus has found us and sent us. He's found us and he has sent us. So the angel told the women after looking in the tomb to run and tell the disciples in verse 8, says that they did exactly as they were told. They left the tomb with fear and great joy. I love how the humanity of these women is on full display. They don't turn from the angel, beat their chest, super Christian now, we can do this. They're still afraid. Their fearlessness is in formation, but they've at least added joy to it in this moment. I love that scene. So they depart the tomb with fear and great joy. They're running to the disciples, and all of a sudden, Jesus Jesus met them. They didn't find him. They didn't stumble onto Jesus, but Jesus found them. And what does it say about these women 
that they are chosen by God and granted the honor of the first audience with our resurrected Lord. He could have chosen anyone. He could have shown up in this moment in any place to any person. He could have appeared first to the high priest Caiaphas, who hated him, and organized his execution. He could have appeared in the palace of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who ordered his execution. He could have shown up in the palace of Caesar Tiberius, the Roman emperor at this time, and stated who he was and what he was about, but he didn't. He found the women. Weak by the world standards. Culturally, tremendously unimportant. In that first century culture, Here's how little women were thought of. They were not considered reliable reporters. Therefore, women were not allowed to testify in legal matters. But Jesus found them, and he told them, I want you to go and testify of me to my brothers. And think about this. When he finds them, they're weak by the world standards. Not only that, they're also unbelievers, They weren't going to the tomb that day because they expected to find it empty. That wasn't even an option to them. They expected to find death. They went to the tomb with unbelieving hearts. Jesus first appeared to these weak, unbelieving, precious women. And He didn't chastise them for forgetting what He said or for not believing what He said or for still holding on to their fear. He comforted them with a greeting, and then he received their worship. This story shows us both the infinite power of Jesus and the infinite tenderness of Jesus as he draws near to these women. It's easy to forget how Jesus views his people. It's easy to forget how he views you. The types of people that attract Jesus are are not those that we would assume We expect Jesus to hang with perfect people, super religious people, super successful people. Yet over and over again, the Bible shows us that His heart is drawn to those who are battered and broken. Nobody has a story that can make Jesus blush. Our sin does not repel such a compassionate Savior. Rather, it attracts Him. And that's something that religious people tend to forget, and it's something that sinful people struggle to believe. He knows your fear and failure, and He is not ashamed of you. The cross settles this once and for all. He endured the shame and suffering of the cross because He loves His people, In rising from the dead, he comes seeking sinners of every kind, sinners who are weak and marginalized like the women in this story, or those who are terrified like the disciples, or those who are wealthy like Joseph of Arimathea in whose tomb he was laid, or those who are powerful like the Roman soldier at the foot of the cross who was the first to declare, this must be the Son of God. He loves you. He's not ashamed of you. And his full embrace of these women is seen further in the dignity and importance of the mission he gave them. He told them in verse 10, go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee. They will see me there. Jesus could have told them that himself, but he didn't. He 
gave that work to these women. They did what they were told. Jesus took women who were fearful and small, and he made them his ambassadors to the world. And he did the same with those 11 disciples as well. When they met Jesus in Galilee, if you were to keep reading in Matthew 28, he told them this, go and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus took men who were terrified, who doubted him, who denied him, who abandoned him, who were too afraid to even visit the tomb on that Sunday, and he made them ambassadors of good news. And ever since that Sunday, Jesus' followers have told this story and invited all who hear to believe that Jesus loves them and he's not ashamed of them. It's indeed the very mission of this specific church. South Shore Baptist Church exists for this purpose. We have a mission statement. It's on the front of your worship bulletin. And that mission statement is a reflection of this interaction between these women and Jesus. They worshiped him, and then they went and told the story. And here is our mission statement. It reads this way. South Shore Baptist Church exists to glorify God by worshiping him and by making disciples for Christ from people of the South Shore and beyond. And we are people who are fearful and weak and small in the world's eyes. And we also have doubted Jesus and denied him and abandoned him. But we testify that he came to us and we have given our lives to him. Jesus found us. And he wasn't ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And this is why by our worship and our witness, we lift our voices together and we say he is risen. So I ask you, what is the meaning of he is risen? Well, it means that we are objects of his powerful love. It means that he has destroyed our fear. And it means that he has found us and he has sent us. This is no cliche. For Christian people, this truth has been the lens through which we view our lives and our future. And those people in the Bible who saw the risen Lord never got over it. They faced every conceivable hardship in the hope of the resurrected Christ. Every heartache in this life was met with the truth, He is risen. And that's how it has to be for us as well. When the storm clouds gather, He is risen. And when the way forward is uncertain, he is risen. And when your fear spikes, he is risen. And when we feel forgotten, he is risen. And when we are hard-pressed on every side, he is risen. Among people where Christ has not been named, we say he is risen. And when people ask you the reason for your hope, your answer, he is risen. And when this church gathers in worship again next Sunday, it is because he is risen. And when we close our eyes for the last time here and open them for the first time there, we will proclaim forever and ever, He is risen, He is risen indeed. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope you have heard His love for you this morning. Powerful, mighty, magnificent, incredible, uninventable, the love of Christ for you. Now, without Jesus, our lives are full of weakness and fear and shame. Our lives are defined by death. 
So the story of Easter, it, it doesn't call you to perform for Jesus in the hopes that he will do you well, but rather Easter is the stunning realization that Jesus has come to you. He has found you in all of your sin, and he will take your sin and its punishment on himself because he loves you. Jesus died in your place for your sin. That's what Good Friday is all about. And three days later, he rose from the dead. That's what Easter Sunday is all about. He's the only one that could do this because he alone is both fully God and fully human. He has to be fully human in order to really live and to really die. And he has to be fully God to conquer death and for that death to be effective for our salvation. No one else has loved you the way Jesus has loved you. And so he invites you today to turn to him. He'll receive your worship. He'll take you as his own. If you will turn from your sin and your self-righteousness and you will give your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you aren't ready for that today, but you'd be up for a conversation. Then I want you to grab me or one of the pastors or a friend you know who walks with Jesus and let's have that conversation this week. Or use your connect card to say, I want a pastor to contact me in the week ahead and we'll get with you. It'll be the most important conversation on our calendar this week and yours as well. But maybe, maybe this is the moment. Maybe you're like the women in this story. You've been walking under the weight of death and sin, but now you've seen and you've heard and you are ready for Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You can do that by turning to Him today. You might use a simple prayer to make that happen. Look, there's no magic words that bring salvation. There's no magic church-sanctioned prayer. God knows your heart perfectly. And when you know that Jesus is God in the flesh who died for you and rose again, and you're going to turn your whole life to follow him, then you're forgiven and you're his, and eternal life is yours. But you might use a simple prayer to voice that to Jesus he doesn't need the prayer. I, I find that we need that prayer. It's for our encouragement, for the benefit of our hearts. And that simple prayer might say something like this. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. So I'm trusting you who died and rose again for me. Forgive me, save me. I give my life to follow you. And when you say yes to Jesus, you'll find that he has already said yes to you because Jesus loves you. He loves you indeed. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, we praise you for this glorious day in which we celebrate your power and love given for us. Thank you for a resurrection day for a life defined by hope, not by fear, not by death. Thank you that at the cross and the empty tomb, every horrible thing has been destroyed and life has been given to us by faith. And so we praise you this morning for the meaning of he is risen, for what we've seen in the story this morning and for every other infinite truth that your word gives us. Take our fear, take our sin, take our unbelief, take our brokenness, receive our worship. Make us whole as we carry out your work and live your words among the people we live with. And Father, I pray this morning for friends in here, 
that came in thinking they were searching for you, but you found them instead. Lord, bring new life as they turn to you in faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.